All right, everybody. Chapter 11. Uh, just to recap, we... Chapter 11 is the end of a long discourse, started in chapter 8. So we've been working at this since before Christmas, um, just working our way through it. I remember last week was some pretty, pretty harsh words talking about uh, what, the, what the men of the city, those who devise iniquity and, uh, what was the other bit? Give wicked counsel, right? The ones who say the time is not near and who say uh, the city is a cauldron and we are the meat. So then Ezekiel is prophesying to them, all right? And remember, there was no way to leave. So those in the city were going to be slain. Those fleeing the city were going to be slain as well. So we talked about how there was a judgment upon um, all of them on, on Israel. And, and then we, this especially, this phrase right here in verse 10, then you shall know that I am the Lord. So if you remember last week, we mentioned this, that, uh, and it says it again in verse 12, right? And you shall know that I am the Lord, right? So if the Lord did not, if he was not faithful to his word, then he would not be the Lord anymore. That's basically the assertion that's being made here. Well, he says, because of your iniquities, because of what you've done, this is the judgment. This is like parents, teachers know this. Like you don't make a threat without being willing to uh, follow through on it. And sometimes following through on it, thinking of this guy, he's a piece of work. Anyway, now, I don't know, it's the age, right? I think we have some of them in school too. So uh, same thing with God. God. If he's not, it doesn't mean that he can't have grace and mercy because he speaks with two words, right? These words are not opposed to each other necessarily, although often they seem that way, right? Uh, because what God does, even with his word of judgment is his judgment is for our good too. And maybe that's the thing we're not so good at executing is actually inflicting uh, you know, punishment on children. Even as congregation, the congregation's called to discipline those who err, who walk away. But we're not very good about that either. We just kind of let them walk away and we don't ever say anything. Um, I think it, you know, if, if it's not executed well, then it fails to actually serve its purpose. It's one thing to leave for a while but then, and then to say, Remember what I told you. It's one thing to leave for a while or to leave entirely, intentionally, uh, but it's another thing for the congregation to fail to warn. You can't really live outside Christ's word as it's given to you in the gifts of the church for very long without making a wreck of your faith because that's the way faith is given. All right, so it's the same thing. Um, discipline just for its own sake isn't really the point. I mean, even parents discipline in order to forgive. Right? All right, I don't know if Marlo agrees. I'm looking at it. It's discipline in school. This is a topic all the time. Yes. <laughs> and, and the intent is really the point, right? Um, and the children need to know that you're not trying to hurt or harm them, right? So, and God, God's the same way. So we can learn from him how to do that. So uh, although the judgment here is pretty severe, right? I mean, a lot of people are dying and the city's being destroyed and the temple's being vacated. So uh, that sounds pretty bad, and it is. But we're about 600 years into idolatry major idolatry with a few moments of faithfulness. So that's another lesson we can learn from God. He is long-suffering and patient. Yeah. Is that right, Xander? Oh, pastor talked to me. Now I'm going to hide. Oh, okay, good. All right. 
Uh, and then remember at the end, this we spent some time on last week too. Now it happened while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, Benaiah, excuse me, died. And then I fell on my face, I, Ezekiel, and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? All right, so we talked about how that's kind of a, uh, hmm, it's a lot like we talked about today. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Hi, Xander. Are you going to listen? Okay. Right. So it's, it seems like that. I mean, is it completely despairing of faith or is he, it seems like he's pretty close to that, right? Like, are you just going to destroy everybody? But this, that's the kind of, it's actually a kind of intercession. We heard, we've heard it from Moses. Moses does the same thing. You're going to destroy the people you saved from Egypt. What's that going to do for your reputation, God? You save the people only to bring them out in the wilderness and kill them? It sounds kind of the same, doesn't it? That's from Moses. That's right. So the prophets do this. They remind God of his faithfulness. Yeah. Remember us. And sometimes, at least from our perspective, I would suggest, God needs to be remembered. <laughs> he needs to, we need to re- help him remember. That's how it looks like from, uh, from our perspective. Like he's forgotten, he's forsaken. Of course, we know that's not true, but that is our experience. So you have the conflict of faith and experience there. And a different sense of time. Yeah. Yeah, so like deliverance, if you wanted to apply the sermon, like deliverance of healing. Sometimes it's like, like what we heard. I will, your servant is healed. You're like, whoa, that was quick. Other times, it's not even until the resurrection. Yeah, right. And so that's the challenge. Has he promised healing for everyone? Yeah, of course. That is the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Essential Christian confession. Death and resurrection. But um, that doesn't mean that he doesn't give us glimpses of that resurrection now and, and can which I was suggesting in the sermon. Uh, I'm not sure I or other, <laughs> if we actually believe that, right? Especially with the debilitating illness so, or terminal disease. So um, where do we leave off? Ah, yes. Will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? God has an answer, right? Is he going to let Ezekiel just have the last word? No. He doesn't in church either, by the way. Right? It seems like the church service keeps ending, but then you keep talking. So then he has to keep telling you, <laughs> peace be with you. <laughs> right? And then the pastor makes announcements and wrecks the whole thing. All right. Hopefully I didn't. Uh, 14, it's just the end of the chapter. Just seven verses, but there's a lot going on here. So who would like to read? Okay, Matt. Yep. Detestable. Uh-huh. 
scrolling. There we go. You got lots of big words. Here, we can read to the end. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with, with, with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is the east side of the city. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, mm-hmm. to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. All right, so thank, thank goodness he gave us some context at the end. Because like I said, we've been in this at, since chapter 8. So at the end, they remind you what, what's been going on here is that Ezekiel has had a vision of, back in Jerusalem, of what time and place or time necessarily we don't exactly know. Seems like he's in multiple times. But he bodily is in Babylon in the, the land of the Chaldeans, who are kind of the ruling party of Babylon. All right. So he's had this vision. The Lord has taken him, transported him through space and maybe time, right, to see what's about to happen or what has happened, or a little bit of both, and then um, returns him back to speak of the prophecy to the captives, uh, which explains that there's kind of, at the beginning of the reading, I should probably scroll back to that, uh, yeah, we can scroll back and then we'll go back again. We'll bounce back and forth. This bit about son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. So it does seem there's some conflict remaining between those who have already been taken into exile in Babylon and those who haven't, who are back in, is in Judea, Jerusalem, that now they're claiming that the land only belongs to them. It doesn't belong to the ones who have been put into exile. Right? So, there, I mean, that's a, it's a kind of... There's probably an analogy to the church in, in terms of, like, denominationalism. You've heard the joke about, you know, you get to heaven. It doesn't matter. Whatever church body you're in, the joke always goes the same. Like, we'll just use the Lutherans, because here we are, you know. The Lutheran, you know, everybody else will come to heaven, the Lutherans will realize that there are other people that are saved, you know. There's the Lutherans praying in their room and didn't know anybody else was going to be there. That exclusivity, you know, yeah. Um, which you have to be careful about that we not, as much as we emphasize teaching the word rightly, that we don't exclude saving faith from those who um, are confused, right? Who have a mixture of truth and error, who have introduced some error into their, so like faithful Roman Catholic or Presbyterian or whatever you want to say, right? This happens uh, in Lutheran Twitter. You know Twitter, that fancy, f- yeah, Lutherans on Twitter, are some of the worst Lutherans I know. <laughs> okay, just put that way. Because social media just makes every, all their bad tendencies even worse. Of a, uh, and it's particularly that exclusivity. Like it's not possible for someone who holds to some error to ever say the truth. Right? What, wrong in part, wrong in the whole. They're like, well, if they're wrong on Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, yeah, they'll be wrong in the rest of it too. But if they have the central article right, but they, maybe they have a little bit different understanding of the ministry of the church, um, or even the presence of Jesus in the sacrament, or some confusions there, or, or even like who should receive baptism. It's like, but they still baptize in, the, in Jesus' name, or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
you know, and say, well, I don't agree and I think it's actually wrong, but I'm not going to set you outside of the possibility of being saved. That's not my job. That's Jesus' job anyway. All right. The only time is uh, obviously where, we, where they deny Jesus. It's just straight up. All right. So yeah, Lutherans, Lutherans have that tendency, but other church bodies too, that kind of like highly radicalized, like we're the only faithful Roman Catholics. They're called the trad Catholics, right? Trad Cath, <laughs> for short. You know, the pious, the pious, whatever the guy, 10th, I guess, or 11th, or the guy, you know, only Latin mass. They're the only ones who get it right. And they don't even agree. They don't even see Francis as the Pope. He's, Benedict was the last faithful Pope for them. <laughs> so anyway, every church body has this. All right. And the same thing's happening here with Ezekiel. It's like, well, who's, who's, who's going to inherit that land? Is it only those who are, who've remained because everybody else was kicked out? Because obviously they were unfaithful or they wouldn't have gotten kicked out. Um, or is it actually all those? Uh, and then, of course, as we hear, not just of Israel, but actually of all nations are going to be gathered into to Jerusalem, Israel, um, the temple, the dwelling of God, all of that, which we'll get to in a minute. All right. So that's a little bit of the context. We're, we have both places. And remember, Ezekiel is prophetically speaking of the destruction of the temple, but it has not yet happened. So that's going to be the ultimate judgment when all of those who remain basically are going to be exiled. Right. But um, this is the way that empires do it. First they conquer in a little, and then they, if there's rebellion, they just conquer in the whole. Roman do, Rome does the same thing. First they put in Herods, right? And then the Herods don't go well, and there's, another, there's too many rebellions, and so then they just topple the whole thing. They just go through and wipe them out, all of them, right? Along with the temple. So that will, that hap- that will happen again, actually. It happens more than once. The second temple is destroyed just like the first temple is here. All right, go back to the end. Um, we should talk a little bit again about context. 22 and 23, remember, we, since chapter 8, the vision has been in the temple, right? You remember the four? I, I can't remember them all. We'll try. There was the glory of the Lord in the holy place, but set in opposition to it was the statue of jealousy. jealousy thank you. Some kind of idol. Massive. So can God and an idol, the glory of God and the idol, dwell in the same holy place? No. Because again, like we were talking about before, that's a case where it's an exclusive claim. Either God or idol. You can't believe in God and idols. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about what that's called. It's called syncretism. You've heard of this before? Well, it's not exactly heresy. It is, but um, syncretism. Oh, I got to remember the Latin. Who knows Latin? Have I told you how stupid English is? I feel like I need to remind you. Because English, you have to learn like 15 different languages to understand where words come from. Because we get words from... German, from Latin, from French, from which Latin and French, okay, Spanish. Those are all romantic languages. They connect to each other. Um, we have Greek. We have, I don't know, we have languages from all. Then we have just random Gaulish and Frankish words. That, like, where did these, I don't even know what this means. Try to read Old English. Good night. Anyway, English is a stupid language, so I don't remember where it comes from. But uh, sin means with in this case. S-Y-N, with. And then I can't remember what the rest of it is in Latin. Somebody have a dictionary? All right, fine. Define syncretism. Let's see if it'll tell me here. Dictionary from modern Latin and from Greek. 
so sin together or with, and literally Cretan. Huh. Like the island. And the Cretans were, you know, the people that didn't get along with everybody, anybody. Right. So this is taking two things that don't belong together and putting them together. Two things that should be, that are opposed to each other, but joining them together. That's what it means, literally. To put Cretans with other people. There's a saying in the Bible, Paul quotes it. It's a maxim of the day. Um, what is it? He says it at the Areopagus. Can anything good? No, that's anything good from Nazareth. Oh, all Cretans are liars. It's in the Bible, so it must be true. I don't know anybody from Crete. All right, anyway. Um, so, for example, worship of the true God and then worship of the God of money. Can't do it. Or worship of the true God and the worship of, of the God of the state. Can't do it. They can't go together. They, you can't have two lords. Either their lordship is subservient to God's lordship, to the lordship of Jesus, um, or they're opposed to Jesus. Right? So the Antichrist can take many forms, too, then. Right? Anyway, so we had the statue of jealousy. We had the, that room with all the little idols in the wall, all the little carved idols. And the elders were in there worshiping in secret. Very strange, right? We had the women singing to some Babylonian god. Do you remember her name? What's that? Tammuz. Yeah, it was Tammuz. Good job, Gabe. All right. Yeah. And then I, I can't remember what the other one was. Was there a fourth? Or maybe it was just three. All of that was happening in the temple. Oh, yeah, there was the sun worship. Very good. There were four. Yeah, so they were worshiping the sun, too. So we, all of that was happening in the temple, a place reserved for the worship of God alone. A place where he had promised to put his name, and then they defiled it with their false worship. Um, this is in the reading today as well. Um, well, we'll get to that. Remind me to talk about defilement if we get to it. I wanted to get to the gospel today. <laughs> but defilement is necessary. All right. Um, so anyway, uh, God had said, I'm leaving. I'm abandoning the temple. Right? He told Ezekiel this. And he makes his way out. So first he leaves the holy place. Then he's in the courtyard. Then he's at the east um, side, I think. Did, is that what it said? Oh, it was at the beginning of, this re of chapter 11 that he went to the east side. Or the end of the last reading. I read it. I don't know where it was. Oh yeah, to the east gate, beginning of chapter 11. See that? Brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house. And so it seems like the glory of the Lord has moved there. And then in our reading today, the glory goes all the way out to the mountain. Right? And remember, it's, it's the, the glory of God is sitting upon his chariot, which is kind of like a throne as well. Because it's got these cherubim holding up the chair, you know, like a king. And then there's these wheels of angels, wheel angel things. They've got wings and faces, but they're the wheels of the... Just imagine it. By the way, Michael Heiser, you know, who I learned a lot of this kind of like the background information for this stuff from. Um, his cancer, he's done treatment. It's not going to work. So it's, it's fully terminal. So he says he's got like weeks to live. This is somebody we, we've read together. Yeah, yeah, it's sad. Yep, but thank God he wrote what he did. Right, we have, we have his catalog of... Yep. Yep. All right. So uh, let's see. Yeah. So the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. It stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city, which the con Esther, do you need help? Clearly, she does not have it. You're completely destroying the bag. You see this little bit right here? 
Oh, there's even a pull tab? Ooh. I'm not going to do that. I'm not doing that. I'm going to do it my way. Masterful. As any father should be able to do, I suppose. <laughs> okay. All right, so um, the mountain on the east side of the city. Huh, outside the city gates. Hmm. Is there a mountain? Wait, is that what? Golgotha? What? Golgotha? Calvary? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Right? And then John's confession in John's gospel is that, that the glory of God is revealed in the suffering and death of Jesus. Right, he takes the heart of stone, dies, and gives us his heart of flesh. Yeah, there's that exchange language. That's right. And that's really vivid in the cross, right? Because he becomes sinner for us, right? Takes all of our sin, becomes the sinner so that we become the righteous one in his, you know, with his righteousness. Yeah. Um, right, but there's the real thing here. It's right here at the top of my sheet. You see the italicized phrase? This section summarizes the gospel through a Christological lens. The God works, and you're going to learn some Latin, sorry, sub contrario. That's kind of, I said it more like it's Italian. That is, in a form contrary to what human reason expects. Right? So the cross, John says, is the gospel of God revealed. It's the light shining in the darkness. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. Somebody suffering and dying is both good news, is light, is life, because he's dying, right? So God is delivering the opposite of what we see, what we expect. It looks like the Son of God dies, and yet that's the source of life. It looks like um, sin and devil have had the victory, and yet it is their defeat, right? It looks like darkness has overcome the light, right? Remember, thick darkness from noon till three, and yet the sun will rise, to borrow that, um, on, on Easter Sunday. So, subcontrario. All right. Uh, let's see. Well, maybe I should use the notes. Or do you like me just going all over the place? The notes will keep us in order. Marla's our uh, pedagogical expert here, so she can tell me what she prefers. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, I think it is. All right, so let's go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. I gave you a lot of introduction here, but I think it'll be helpful. This section summarizes the gospel through a Christological lens, that is, in the light of Christ. God works under the opposite in a form contrary to what human reason expects. Here the issue is where the remnant, the true Israel consisting of the legitimate heirs of God's promises, is to be found. And you know that was a conflict still in Jesus' day, right? We are sons of Abraham. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You're sons of the devil because you don't believe in the promise given to Abraham because that promise is here, right? So, so your, your kinship is actually... Um, by faith in God's word, not by human blood. Right? So we still, this, this conflict about who are the legitimate heirs is still a promise, or still a problem, I should say. Like Jeremiah, who's a contemporary, but remember Jeremiah is back in, he's in a cistern in uh, Jerusalem, right? So about the same time. So there's, there's prophecy happening on both sides of the exile. Those who still remain, who refuse to repent, those who are in exile who are despairing and refusing to repent. <laughs> All right. Ezekiel insists that God's future lay with those who died to their past and would be miraculously resurrected by God. All right, and as you know, the death-resurrection pattern comes to its climax on Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We are initiated into Christ's death and resurrection in the sacrament of holy baptism. 
right? So dying and rising is the daily life of the Christian, as Luther reminds us, uh, which is our baptism. Um, and are maintained in him. So um, you heard this in the, the little bit about National Lutheran Schools Week with the, with the verse. I don't know why we leave this off. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them, right? So baptism without teaching is like being grafted onto something but never actually receiving, continuing to receive the sustenance that goes with it, right? So teaching always goes with baptism, ongoing catechesis, right? Um, and so same for us, that we are maintained in him through the application of law and gospel in his word and the sacrament of the altar, right? So the word attached to bread and wine there for his body and blood. Daily we die to sin and rise to new life in Christ. All right, so you know all of this. We've talked about this before. These verses, I think I said this already, but here it is again, are Yahweh's response to Ezekiel's outcry, right? Are you going to destroy or make a complete end of all the remnant of Israel? Right, so now he's responding to that. Earlier in chapter 9, which is part of the same vision, when Ezekiel had posed the same thought as in 11.13, but phrased more hopefully as a question, will you destroy? Question mark. You will destroy. Yahweh proclaims emphatic gospel this time. All right. So God's law rightly drives the hearers to despair of their own merit and abandon hope of evading judgment. Everybody's going to be judged. Right. And, and so don't, you can't take any credit or claim anything is coming from yourself, as Paul says. But when the penitent casts themselves upon God's mercy alone, they hear the gospel, this, his gospel pardon and promise of new life. All right. Um, one more note. After Jerusalem's fall, recorded in chapter 33, all right, so we're going to keep hearing about judgment and destruction uh, from chapter 13 to 33. So you got about 20 chapters more of this. We'll keep bringing out gospel throughout it, don't worry. Um, if it's implicit, hopefully, if not explicit. The gospel message will predominate, this gospel message will predominate in Ezekiel. However, here he still faces an audience that does not believe that such a thing will ever happen. All right? So, I mean, that sounds like what you heard today in the sermon. Can God give miraculous healing? According to his word, yes. Do we actually believe that? I don't know. I'm not sure I do. <laughs> Just to be honest about it, right? Um, although I've seen it. So that's kind of like, even though I've seen examples where it has happened, you know, cancer being just disappearing and these sort of things. Well, we give credit to the whatever. We give credit to something else other than God. All right. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's something. It's kind of similar to the gospel question. Well, if the gospel is for everybody, why does not everybody believe? Well, if Jesus can heal, why doesn't he just heal everybody? And so the, the, the answer to both questions is the same, for the sake of faith. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's true too. Um, it's on the it's on here somewhere. It's probably on the back side of the sheet. Um, that as Christians now we under, I think we understand maybe even better than the patriarch or the prophets did here or the patriarchs that um, you know as Paul says uh, the flesh is, counts for nothing. That we we now fully embrace the idea that the only way through this is ultimately going to be death and resurrection in a way that I'm not quite sure they are. I mean, it does seem like they, could, they do confess death and resurrection, 
But like, it's really the only ultimate answer. Because no matter how much healing he gives us, we get sick again. Right? And no matter how much forgiveness he gives us, we go back to our sin. It's like, well, who's going to finally put an end to this body of death, as he says in Romans 6? Jesus Christ. Right? The righteous one. And that finally is on, on a, with our death and resurrection. Now, I mean, I, some people use that as kind of a fatalistic thing. It's like, well, if I can't stop sinning, I might as well keep doing it. If I can't, you know, if I can't, if this body is just worthless, then I might as well just do whatever I want to it. We see that too. That's like the whole transhumanist thing. Or I might as well use whatever crazy technology I can to try to preserve my life. Young blood transfusions, bionic parts, whatever, right? And some of those can be gifts and some of those, I think, can be curses because you're denying the need for death and resurrection, right? So um, especially elderly Christians or people who have been quite ill, um, most recently, like Bev Depius was this way, you know, you'll end up with questions of not whether God can heal. It's like, why why hasn't he just brought me to my death, which is clearly coming, so that I can have the resurrection. So then you're on the flip side. It's like, I want to die, and I know I'm dying, but he hasn't done it yet. So there again, faith is required to say it's not, he has fruitful labor for me, whatever that might look like. All right. So, I mean, it is, I'm not saying this is, any of this is easy. And it is paradoxical, right? And that God promises healing, yet he doesn't always give it, right? Um, Not in time, but always in eternity. And I think that's the point, right? And so, you know, I've said this before that, you know, um, ending a prayer with, if it be thy will, it kind of seems like a cop-out a little bit, right? It's like, well, I'm asking for things, but I don't know if I really should be, so I'm just going to add that at the end. And then if it actually is a good thing to ask for, then you'll do it, and if not... Um, and I don't, that's not the intent. I think the intent is to be faithful to say, I don't know when, in God, when God's going to give me weal or woe, when he's going to give me life, or when he's going to give me death. I, um, so I don't know if I'm ask, what I'm asking is what's actually best for me now. And so I trust in you, O oh Lord, to give what is right. You know, um, but it also seems to me that maybe it's fine to just be completely direct about it and say, "Give me healing," right? But don't add the "or else." Then, then you're like Job's friends, right? It's like, well, he hasn't healed you, so he must not love you. And, uh, which uh, we could do a whole Bible study on Job. It's a long book too. We could get stuck in there for a while. Uh, let's get stuck in Ezekiel. All right. So, uh, where did we leave off? Oh, I'm still on my sheet. This is to this, to this topic. All right. After Jerusalem's fall, the gospel message will predominate in Ezekiel. Is it? Well, it's this one, right? Look to, look to God's mercy alone. However, here he still faces an audience that does not believe such a thing will ever happen. You know, it's, it's just like the people of Israel in Egypt. Are we ever going to go back? And then when God starts delivering them, then they're like, why don't we just go back to Egypt? Better the devil we know, right? How stupid was that? As Luther reminds us, sin makes us stupid. Hey, shh, quiet. No, quiet. Shh. Now you're just openly rebellious. All right. Yet the inclusion of this section's description of what God will do after the judgment um, comes would reinforce to the exiles that the future judgment is a foregone conclusion, right? It's going to happen. The issue is not unique to Ezekiel. It's part of the alternation of weal and woe, to quote uh, Jeremiah the pattern of law and gospel commonly found in all the prophets and intimated already in the Pentateuch. You can see Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30. We saw it earlier in chapter 5 and 6 of Ezekiel. We'll see it again later. So, um, 
to just preach forgiveness, love, God's, the gospel in a reductionist sense, I chose those words carefully, of temporal peace and success and avoiding any call to repent is exactly what the false prophets do today. So they, they don't say there's a judgment coming. God won't judge us according to our actions. Or the way that we've defiled our land, which we literally have, not just with pollutants, right? But with child sacrifice, which is an abomination to God. And we're polluting our land with that, right? Even polluting our, our uh, wastewater system because now, uh, what is it, CVS and Walgreens have the over-the-counter. The, the pharmacist can prescribe you morning-after pill for uh, the abortifacient. So if you think you've conceived, you can take the pill. And so all of that will just be flushed down the toilet. All this life defiling the land. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, right, with, with human. They do here. Yeah, it gets processed. I don't know what that means. But you know all the things you eat. Now imagine all those things being put on the ground. Like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't put it in my mouth in the first place. <laughs> What's the big topic today? Forever plastics? Do you know about these? Microplastics? PFAS? I don't know what it stands for. PFAS. I know that's the acronym, right? That are just, they, they don't ever... The problem, not only is it like, you can't just, they're not just in a landfill. They're in everything. They're on all the land. The deer are full of it. And all it is is just very, very small particles of plastic that won't degrade. And they just fill your body. So, yeah, so in a real sense, we've defiled not only ourselves, but the land, right? And we think that there's not going to be a judgment for that. Because well, it's not just spiritual. It's physical, too. This is the problem. Remember, we talked about the connection of the physical and the spiritual with uh, the kind of idolatry, how it's done in the body. It's not just in the mind or in the heart. All right. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. All right, so uh, we don't want to reduce God's word to just God loves everybody just the way they are. Why not? Because it's denying the judgment of, against sin. And then the question is, why, why do we need the gospel at all? Why do we even need God's love anyway? If, if, ever, if, if everything is love, if just Mother Earth loves us too. So I just, you can worship, I just worship myself because that's just the easiest way <laughs> to forget about all the other God. Yeah. I know. I mean, people think that they're atheistic today. Uh, no, your, your God is just very close to you. <laughs> the one you know the best. All right. Then, uh, 14 and 15, remember we talked about the conflict? And so I gave you a little highlight here. There's the brothers, which are the immediate family. There's the men of the redemption. And then there's the whole house of Israel, right? And... Actually, um, the exile had begun from Israel. Remember, two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. Solomon's sons split the kingdom into two. Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians 100 years before this. Solomon didn't do it. His sons did it. They both wanted a kingdom. Can't have two kings. They, so this was the uh, mutually agreed destruction solution. <laughs> Yeah, but not, not Solomon's oldest. Rehoboam and the other guy, Jeroboam. Yeah. And then it, but then the problem with Israel and the reason why they're taken to exile first is because they set up false altars because the king of the north does not want them, his people going to the south to worship. So then he sets up, he sets up a temple way up in the north at um, Dan. 
uh, and Bethel, right? Bethel, Dan, and I think it, there's, there's altars all over the place by the time of the exile to whatever gods, Canaanite gods, Syrophoenician gods, the whole deal. Baal and Astra, of course. Right. Yeah, so they're taken to exile because they, right from the first king after the split, they're already rejecting um, faithful worship of God. And it doesn't take long for Judah either. I mean, 100 years isn't that long in the history of the Bible, I suppose. Uh, there's, there seems to be, I suggest, a, a propaganda war between those who so far had escaped exile and those now exiled in Babylon. Yeah, so they're arguing back and forth. Who's going who's gonna to end up inheriting the land when we get to go back? Or you never get to come back, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's, it's a legal issue because land inheritance is, is huge in the ancient world and in the Bible, right? Who gets the land? Which son is the inheritor, right? Um, think of even Ruth and Boaz, right? Who's going to redeem uh, Abimelech, or not Abimelech? What was Naomi's husband's name? I always get it confused with the guy. No, Naomi in the Bible. <laughs> Oh, I just lost it. Well, anyway, there's this vacant land because um, Naomi had no sons. Her sons were dead. And all there is is Ruth. And Ruth can't inherit it. One, she's from Moab. And two, the, the right heir, her husband, is dead. And then, then the kinsman redeemer, so the nearest relative to whoever Naomi's husband was. Somebody's going to go find it in Ruth. Boaz. Bo no, Boaz is Ruth. Boaz is the redeemer. He's the nearest kinsman who redeems uh, Ruth and Naomi and the property by virtue of that. So he comes in by marrying Ruth. Then now he can be the inheritor of that land. It's a Limelech or something. It's, a, it's not Melech. I keep saying Melech. He's not a king. Yeah. Ruth one. It is a Limelech. He's a king. Melech, king. That's what king. Huh. I forgot about that. That's interesting. Isn't that funny? Because there's a king that comes from Ruth. His name is David. His name is Solomon. His name is Jesus. Oh. Funny. I guess I never noticed that before. Now I'm thinking about it. That Ruth's father-in-law was a king by name. By name. By name, yeah. Yeah. One like a king, I think, is what probably it means in Hebrew. Interesting. All right, anyway. Um, so legal and, and theologically, right? Because whoever gets the land also gets the right worship of God, they think, right? But this whole story is like putting an end to that. Nope, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. It's gone. So that's not going to be the location for right worship either. All right. Um, the, so we need to say this. Uh, the link between worship and territory is legit or was legitimate, right? Because God had promised to put his name on the temple in Jerusalem. But it needs to be said that for the Christian church, that promise of dwelling in the land, of being Israel, of, the, of, a, of a, a temple, of a dwelling place of God amongst men, is all fulfilled in Jesus. All of it. Including the land. Including Israel itself. So faithful Christians have... No particular commitment to there being a nation of Israel. That doesn't mean we, you have to support the Palestinians either. But, 
I'm just saying, there are Christians who say, unless there's a temp- unless we can get the Muslims out of Jerusalem, like back with the Crusades, unless we can do that and then rebuild a temple there, Jesus will never come again. He needs us to do that, so he comes again. It's weird. They get it out of Revelation. They're called Zionists. You've heard of Zionists? There's, there's Jewish Zionists who think that without the homeland, they're not really faithful, right? There's Christian Zionists, too who say we need, to have the, we need the Jews to have their land restored to fulfill the promises of God dwelling with his people. They also believe that God, Christ is going to reign on earth for a thousand years before the new heavens and the new earth. It's, all, it's in those black books back there. It's, it's, it's nice pop fiction, but it's not true. Mm-hmm. Right. It is like that. Yeah, it is like that. Right. Um, and part of it too is, I mean, we, I, I can be very charitable to people of the Old Testament, uh, but now for those of the New Testament, the Christians, it's like the New Testament is thoroughly, um, it gives a thoroughgoing commentary on the Old Testament. It tells you how to read the Bible, the whole Bible. Um, Jesus himself does this, right, on the road to Emmaus. He's walking with those disciples. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he opens up to them how all things are fulfilled in him, right? All scripture testifies of me, Jesus says. He puts them through it, right? You see Peter uh, doing this at the beginning of the book of Acts. You see Paul later in the book of Acts, right? You see it with Paul, say, in the, in the letter to the Galatians when he talks about circumcision being fulfilled in Jesus, and now Jesus gives baptism, which is not just for the, heir, the sons as heir, which was fulfilled in him, but now it's for all people in all nations. Yeah. Road to Emmaus, it's Luke 24, I think. Yeah, it's the end of Luke. But it's, yeah, he, began, he opens, to them, opens up to them the scriptures so that they now understand that his suffering and death is the, I, to borrow an old expression, the magic decoder ring for the Old Testament. He, Jesus wants, wants you, in his own words, to understand the Old Testament in light of his suffering and death. To see it. Everything fulfilled in that. Which sometimes it seems a little bit... Dorothy. It doesn't squeak. Sorry. You can hit it as hard as you want. It's not going to squeak. All right. So what did I write here? The land prophecies, the end of that paragraph, uh, are fulfilled in Christ too, much like the temple prophecies. Right? Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And then John's like... And he's referring to his body. (laughs) Right? So right there, John's just telling you. That, both first and second temple, Herod's rebuilding of it, or not rebuilding, his renovation of it, um, all of that finds its fulfillment now in Jesus. So we don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to the Temple Mount because we, wherever Jesus is, there's the dwelling of God with men. There's the glory of the Lord because Jesus is the glory of the Lord revealed. We beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. Through the means of the Spirit, we are already in our promised land. But now, not yet, until the new heavens and new earth are established. So, I, I, I get a little fatigued or frustrated with uh, people who aren't satisfied <laughs> with what God has given and who God has made us. Um, only because I think, it's, I think it's, well, it's just a denial of um, that the, re- the promises of God are now. We like to think of the promise being past tense, 
We don't have any problems talking about the promises of God being fulfilled in the future. But like we heard in the sermon, it's very hard to say for us that he's fulfilling his promises now. I mean, look how beautiful it is when saints of God dwell in unity, which we saw this morning. I mean, how much more beautiful? I, we're not gonna, you're not going to see anything more impressive than what you saw this morning in your life. But we don't necessarily believe that, right? Because God is making all things new again, right? Um, there was a beautiful scene. Don't have to reveal who it was. Two people who haven't talked to each other in a long time that talked to each, saw each other after church and sat down and talked for a while. You know, they old friends, but had kind of set, you know, grown apart for. A, it's like, yeah, exactly. I mean, what what a beautiful gift, right? And it was in the midst of the of the reception of God's word, namely the word of forgiveness and reconciliation. All right, then verse sixteen. Uh, although I have cast them off far among Gentiles, although I have scattered them among the countries. Yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Isn't that beautiful? So he's already saying, I'm with them wherever they go. Which he had said to the exiles when they uh, went into Egypt under, jo- or under uh, Jacob, right? That, and then Joseph reminds us that he's going he's gonna to be with you in Egypt and he's going to bring you back to Canaan. So why do you, this explicit promise of only, God only dwells in that little room in well, it wasn't that little, it was pretty big, but, you know, on a hill in Jerusalem. Uh, that's not the way that God has been present with his people through all the Bible. He, he's wrestling with Jacob by the river Jabbok. He's with Moses on the Mount Tabor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as they're moving through the wilderness, as they're wandering down through the whole Sinai Peninsula. He's always been with them. They just don't believe that. And, but notice what he says. It's a little, what do you call it? A little sanctuary. What's the word? <laughs> A little holy place for them in the countries where they have gone. And that's what I kind of feel like this is. It's like, I think we talked about that board of directors this week, right? There's all sorts of chaos and just insane things happening around us. I mean, just don't be like them. We do our thing. Oh, and people will say things about, so what? Right, exactly. We don't have to do, we don't have to be, we don't have to, we don't have to win friends and influence people to quote Dale Carnegie. <laughs> I mean, we can preach the gospel to them and if Christ, the Spirit give, or Christ by his Spirit gives them forgiveness in life and they believe, yeah. That's, that's the way that people will come into the community. And of course we can demonstrate our love in the way that Christ has loved us. But, but there are going to be plenty of people who say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't know. What, why would I drive two miles out of town? Very weird. I don't know. What, those people are strange. Yeah, well, it's true. Uh, we've been here a long time too, though. All right. And then uh, I like the Orthodox approach to this. The Orthodox Church, which has been through all sorts of nonsense, right, throughout time. doesn't matter which one, Greek, Ru- Russian. Like, the Russians, are, Russians will say today, yeah, we've seen all this kind of stuff before. We just keep doing the church thing, and God will see us through, and there'll be another empire, or there'll be a collapse. or Yeah, 80 years under Soviet rule, and they came out on the other side. I think some of them compromised, which is another problem, but anyway. Yep, that should be our attitude as well. Uh, so God had been with the patriarchs. Yep, there it is. Exiles had been deprived of the stone temple in Jerusalem, but Yahweh promised to, him, to himself be the exile sanctuary. Uh, now, I did note this on the back of page two. Don't worry, we're coming to the end here, even though it doesn't look that way. Um, in the Jewish Targum, which comes after the time of Jesus, um, just that's what they call their commentary. So that it's just collection of rabbis 
talking about what the Bible says, they don't like this saying from Ezekiel. And they especially don't like the way the Christians have understood it. What do they call the group? Oh, the writings are called Targum. They're just collections from rabbis. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like we read the church fathers. They read the Targum. It's the same idea. And um, they, they, they can't help it. They, they don't like it. Um, some have said it's the origin of synagogues, but there were synagogues before the exile, so I don't think that's it. They don't like the idea uh, of downplaying the significance of the temple. Right? Now, Christians, we, have, we love this because it means where two or three are gathered in my name, as he says, I'm there in the midst of them. That's what this sounds like, right? And so two or three are gathered all over the place. We do it in our classrooms. We do it in our homes. Right? And that, so there's a long tradition um, among Christians, especially Lutherans, actually, of having little altars in home. We have, we have some of them at school. We had some of them at school. They're in the building. They just were all taken down from the classrooms Oh, right. Right. So you can have a place for prayer, right? Or a place that you set apart. You know, that's where you keep the Bible. Maybe you light some candles when you pray, that kind of thing. Yeah, a little church in your home. Yeah. For your personal devotion. Yeah. Good. All right. So then, 17. Therefore, say. So now God tells Ezekiel to say this. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, I will assemble you from the countries from which you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. All right? So he's going to bring all the people back. The ones from Israel, the ones from Judah, the ones in Babylon, the ones... He's bringing people from all over the place. Which, of course, finds its fulfillment in Matthew 28, right? Make disciples of all nations. And by the way, it's not, it's not active, it's passive. Go disciple-making. Because who's the one making disciples? Jesus is, right? It is the work that he accomplishes through us. But, and he wants us to go, right? Um, but he's the one that makes them disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. Which he does through us, of course, but we're instrument, instrumental. So it's not a burden, it's just a gift. Just go baptizing and teaching. And he'll accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Um, I, I will gather you. Yeah, so there we go. So this echoes what we heard from uh, Exodus 6, which we'll get to eventually in school, in our daily prayers, where uh, God makes that promise to Moses and sends Moses back into Egypt to bring the people out. Sounds, sounds almost exactly the same. Uh, and then we see a, a similar one in somewhere else. Oh, I didn't put the quote on here. Oh, well. I think Paul has something similar to that too. Everything is given to them by grace. This is the point. It's by God's doing. And everything finds its fulfillment, as we said, including the land in the church under Jesus. So you'll see in Revelation then, remember Ezekiel and Revelation go together. You'll see in Revelation, Revelation 21, 22, you can read that on your own, um, but that there's no need for a temple because Jesus is dwelling. The lamb is on the throne. And all nations bow down before him in the new heavens and new earth. So the, literally heaven is entirely, the, it's a temp, the whole thing's a temple. There's no, nowhere outside of God's gracious presence in heaven. Make sense? Yeah. All right. So now we're little exiles with little, little sanctuary, little holy places. Right? And then the whole, the whole of creation will be holy again. Um, so then we have more idolatry because we can't stop but talk about that again. Why not? But look at what it says. They will go there to the land of Israel and they will take away all its detestable things 
Patrick. Thank you, Leah. They will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there, right? So there is, you see a little picture of this with Josiah and Hezekiah, two kings that are reform-minded. Um, you know, is it Hezekiah or is it Josiah? I think it's Hezekiah is the one who, where they discover the book of Mo, the law, Moses, the books of Moses. Is Josiah? Yeah. They're like, and then they're all weeping when they're when it's being read because they didn't even know it was there still. Isn't that incredible? Like you lost, we lost all the Bibles. <laughs> well, they didn't have that many Bibles because they had printing presses, right? It was, I don't even know. No, it, no, it just sounds like they just were they just piled junk up in the temple. It's just full of junk, idols and other just garbage. They were storing stuff in there. It just got lost in the mess. That's just incredible to me. Right? Um, so that will all be cleaned out as well as all the high places, which we've heard about before in Ezekiel. right? And the way that the land has been defiled, it will, too will be purified. It will be made holy again. There are a few examples in the Old Testament, I didn't put this on the notes, of places that are so defiled that they, can never, they should never be inhabited again. Um, Jericho is one of those. Right? And there, so the curses are attached to, to the rebuilding of Jericho. Right? Um, Sodom and Gomorrah is another one. Babylon is another one, actually, except it didn't stop them. <laughs> they just built an even better one later on. All right. 18, uh, we already did. 19, then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. Should be capital S. And take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. All right. Um, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. All right, so if that's not gospel, I don't know what is, right? Because it's all gift. Faith. Yeah, they're giving him faith. Hardness of heart is a metaphor for uh, refusal to hear God's word. So you see that with Pharaoh especially, right? He hardens his heart or God hardens his heart. It goes both ways, right? Because what happens, what, what, can a hard heart receive anything? No, especially if it's made out of stone. This picture will be the whole big, it'll be a big chapter 36 or 37. Did I put it down? 36, yeah. It's chapter 36. It's the promise there again in the uh, new heavens and new earth. But here it's already given to them even before he gives this more words of terrible judgment, right? So notice, can they do anything about their stony heart? This is when I pull out my favorite metaphor for this. Matt's seen it because he went through catechesis with me. Do you remember the, the picture? There's a dead raccoon, and they tie it up. This is a thing. You can find them on the internet. You tie a get well soon balloon on, on the roadkill. Right? But that's about the effectiveness of telling somebody with a stony heart to get a heart of flesh. It's like telling a dead raccoon to get well. Yeah. This is how the Bible talks about us, Romans especially. You can read it there, Romans 6. Right? And here too. No, it has to be given to us. It's a gift from God. 100%. Can't, can't do a thing for it. It, only has, it can only be given. That, and for what purpose? That they may walk in my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them. Right? And that they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So you might think of it this way. This is the metaphor that Luther uses in his Bondage of the Will, his monumental book. Right, which says basically, and this is quoted in our Lutheran Confession, so I'm not just quoting Luther here. Um, and, the, and the Lutheran Confessions were called a recalcitrant ass. A donkey won't do anything. You know, an, dumb animals, right? Like a dumb ox. 
or a recalcitrant S, right? And the, the question isn't so much what, what, is, the, what is the S going to do? Because the S is going to do whatever it wants, but it's not what it's supposed to do. The question is, who's driving it, right? Who's in the driver's seat? It's not Jesus is my co-pilot, but if Jesus isn't the one riding the ass, then, yeah, then it's just, then it's, yeah, exactly. So it's a question of lordship then, who's, who's there? And this is what God's saying. He's like, you will do, you'll walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them because I will be your God. I'll be in the, if you like, driver's seat. I'll be on the saddle, right? And what a beautiful gift to have, have somebody riding you that, leads you to green pastures and still waters, right? And away from danger and harm, right? right. We don't like to think of ourselves as being hard-hearted, recalcitrant. That, that's just another way of saying hard-hearted. Um, what else? Dumb. <laughs> right. Uh, but let's be honest, and then, uh, and then we can recognize the goodness of what God does for us, right? Yeah. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's first commandment stuff, right? You will have or shall have no other gods before me, before my face. This is just God keeping his promise. <laughs> and you, you can read the law that way, uh, the Ten Commands, right? They are, here's what you must do, and there's also, here's what God's going to do. Right? All right. You can choose not to honor your, your fathers, and others, fathers and other authorities, um, but God will do it. He'll, make, he'll have you do it. Right? You bring them to dishonor, he'll bring you to dishonor. Right? There's all sorts of things here. And ultimately, um, the law is fulfilled then in the kingdom of Christ. Right? So, let's see. 21. But, oh, by the way, got to have more judgment. Sorry. For those whose hearts follow the desire of their detestable things and their abominations. And that's a phrase that Ezekiel loves. Detestable things and abominations. I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. So they'll get what they want. In other words... God doesn't want to be your enemy. He wants to be your God. You want him to be your enemy? Then he'll let you be his enemy. And you'll get whatever that, what comes with that. Which is, I mean, it's encouraging for those of us who believe, I suppose. God will be our God. Then. Lovely. Um, but it's meant to discourage those maybe who uh, think that there's another way other than Jesus. Following? Yeah. So again, it's just more judgment. And judgment is... Not for the sake of death, ultimately. I mean, he does not desire the death of the wicked, but that they repent and live. So even if they are given these, this recompense, maybe it's a warning to others. Maybe it's a warning to them. Maybe there is a time to repent. Maybe there won't be. Right? I don't, that's not a game I want to play. <laughs> you know, that I'll be able to convert on my deathbed or come back to faith then. Let's take care of it now. Yeah. Um, in a way, the promise here is a restatement of the first commandment, as I said. If it were fully obeyed, no other commandments would be necessary. The good news of the new covenant is that such loyalty, I will be your God and you will be my people, is a gift of grace in Christ. So now we need to understand this in light of Christ, right? Christians remain both saints and sinners, and as such, we cannot and do not fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Not by the flesh, right? Um, this language, by the way, they shall be my people and I will be their God, is rooted in ancient wedding language. It's a part of the ceremony, likely. But you can see it almost explicitly in Song of Solomon, uh, if you can bear to read through that without being scandalized. Chapter 2, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Solomon's pretty explicit. He's more earthy than we are. We, we're, we're very 
prudish or uh, puritanical, I guess. Not the Bible. Oops. And then you'll see it, Old Testament Israel as the wife of Yahweh, Ezekiel 16 and 23. So we'll get to that soon. And then ultimately the bride of Christ, New Testament church, Revelation 19 and 21. All right. So um, that language of, well, that was marriage. We talked about marriage last week, didn't we? All right. And then one more thing. Oh, I totally try to pack all this in. It's only seven verses. How did it take me so long? The, um, don't get confused about the heart of stone and heart of flesh. Uh, and then Paul's use of flesh in Romans and Galatians in particular. Because there when he talks about the flesh being um, like the seed of sin, he's talking about our sinful existence. He describes that as the flesh. And then if we live by the spirit, it's not a non-bodily experience. That's where people get confused sometimes. It's like, well, the body is bad, but the spirit is good. Uh, that's not what he means. He means life in this flesh is full of sin, but the life of the Spirit, which we already have now by faith and will have both in body and soul in the resurrection, is good. Yeah. And so Christians live in a double existence then, where we're suffering under our sin and the judgment and weight of the law, but the yet time we tr at the same time we trust um, by faith, working by the, worked by the Spirit through our baptism, to know that, that we are God's children even now, despite what we experience in our lives. And because of our, our flesh. So that's different because here it's heart of stone, heart of flesh, and the flesh is the good thing, right? So, so metaphors sometimes, Jesus loves to mix metaphors, which makes it even harder. He'll go from one metaphor to the next to the next. And they're like, they're poor, poor kids that are like, you know, um, early childhood. And they're like, one analogy is too many. <laughs> Can you speak more concretely for me, please? <laughs> yeah. And so, but I don't know, this is pretty concrete, I would say. You know, your heart, normally, things can get in and out, right? But if you have a hard heart, the blood can't flow through it, and what happens to you? Yeah. So I think kids probably could understand that, right? And now he gives you a heart of flesh that allows for the blood to flow so that your life can, his life actually can go through you. So, all right. So maybe it's not quite a metaphor, but actually more uh, concrete. Good. Okay, there's a lot of other things we could talk about, but hopefully that's helpful, you know? What a beautiful gift there, though, right? In 19 and... 20, right? Put my spirit within them. And by the way, this should be capital S, Holy Spirit within them, right? He's the one that gives us the will and the ways to do the will, um, the judgments of God and his statutes, not us. It's not I who do these things, but it's Christ who is in me who does them. All right. Anything else? I went a little long, I'm sorry. I guess I was prepared for today. Maybe I'm just really tired. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we got, uh, I got home about midnight, and Dorothy was up at 2.30, so there you go. I got her to go back to bed. I walked her all around the house. Mama, mama, mama. No. And I tried to lay down. No. And then I sat down on the, on the bed, and she pointed at her bed. She went, I want to sleep with you. Put me back in my bed. Mom's not here. Go away, Dad. It was beautiful. All right, so let's close with prayer then. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have, by our baptism, given us new and clean hearts, um, that is, the hearts of flesh that are given to us by the Spirit, that we would walk in your ways and according to your word, not by our own doing, but by his doing and through us. May this gift then be manifest in our lives for the benefit um, of our neighbors and those whom we love, that they too would know 
the love that you have shown to us by our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.